The essence of emotional self-regulation, it's a fancy way to say self-control, is the ability to delay impulse in the service of a goal. So let me say that again. The essence of emotional self-control is the ability to delay impulse in the service of a goal. The importance of this trait was shown in an experiment begun in the 1960s by a psychologist, Walter Michelle, at a preschool on the Stanford University campus. You may have heard of the study before and you may know exactly what I'm going to say here, but I still thought it was helpful um, to what we're gonna be talking about today. Children, and it's actually kind of funny, children were told that they could have a single treat, such as a marshmallow, right now. However, if they would wait while the experimenter ran an, ran an errand, they could have two marshmallows. Some preschoolers grabbed the marshmallows immediately, but others were able to wait, which for them must have seemed like an endless 20 minutes. To sustain themselves in their struggle, they covered their eyes so they wouldn't see the temptation. They rested their heads on their arms. They talked to themselves, sang, even tried to sleep. These plucky kids got the two marshmallow reward. The interesting part of this experiment came in the follow-up. The children who as four-year-olds had been able to wait for the two marshmallows were as adolescents still able to delay gratification in pursuing their goals. They were more socially competent and self-assertive and better able to cope with life's frustrations. In contrast, the kids who grabbed the one marshmallow were as adolescents more likely to be stubborn, indecisive, and stressed. So we need to keep in mind that that was strictly a secular experiment. That has nothing to do with the strength that we as believers have from the Holy Spirit. However, even in the secular world, it is evident that the use of self-control is very important. So clearly there are benefits to practicing this characteristic. So I thought I would start by giving us a little bit of a definition. Definitions can be helpful. So what I did is I went to the Greek from the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians. So I am defining self-control as you would find it in the fruit of the Spirit. So if you were to read in King James, if you have a King James version, it is also referred to as temperance. So self-control or temperance is this, the virtue of one who masters his desires and passions, especially his sensual appetites. So it's one who masters his desires and passions. So then I thought, well, let me look this up in Webster's 1828 and see how he defines it. So he says this, moderation, particularly habitual moderation in regard to the indulgence of the natural appetites and passions. So for example, temperance, because he actually didn't have the word self-control in the Webster's 1828, so I had to look it up under temperance. So temperance in eating and drinking is opposed to gluttony and drunkenness. So that kind of gives you an idea of what we're talking about here. <clears throat> so I thought this was interesting because again, from a secular viewpoint, a man by the name of Edmund Hillary, the first man who conquered Mount Everest was asked by an interviewer about his passions for climbing mountains. Clearly he must have been if he was the first to conquer Mount Everest. 
And this is what he said. It is not the mountain we conquer, but ourselves. Is that not true for us when we consider self-control? We are our greatest enemy. Self-control is often demonstrated in our ability to be disciplined. If we are not disciplined people, we can look and see ourselves as being unable to be self-controlled because discipline and self-control go hand in hand. So if I lack discipline in my life, it is because I ultimately lack self-control. So I actually was reminded of a sermon that I listened to by John MacArthur. This was actually a while ago, but it was helpful as I was listening to it. And as I was studying this week, I thought about it again. I thought, I'm going to share just a portion of this because he was talking about being disciplined. So in the list, he gives practical ways to be disciplined that obviously I thought were helpful. And really what he prefaces before he gives us is he says, if I get an opportunity to speak with young people, he said, these are the things that I encourage them to be disciplined in. However, I don't think we just need to only be young to hear these things. (laughs) So you have those things on your list because I thought you might like to be able to look back at them later. So number one, Learn to discipline yourself in the little things of life because it it is the little things of life that make for big successes. Every little issue of life has to carry weight and importance, not because in itself it's important, but your integrity, your credibility, your word is important even in the little things. Because keep in mind, little things set us on a path to an end result. And if we make poor or sinful decisions in the little things, it sets us on a path toward greater and greater sin. However, when we make little decisions in things that are godly, denying ourselves, loving someone, all these little bitty things, that sets us on a path of more and more godliness, which that's our desire, that's our goal. So number two, clean your environment. Get rid of all that stuff. Clean your desk, your room, your house, your garage. There's a thought, he says. Get yourself to a place where orderliness matters. Learn how to keep your environment clean and clear so that you can function without myriad of distractions. Number three, make a schedule and learn to conform to it. Whether it's an absolute hard and fast schedule or whether it's a little more fluid, This helps you anticipate things and establish time frames in which they need to be done. Train yourself to keep that schedule. You could take any one of these things and really go a long way with it just in building these disciplines into your life. We think about how many of them we struggle on a day-to-day basis to be consistent in. Number four, wean yourself off of being entertained so that you can take it or leave it. Get yourself to a place where if you have excess time to do things, that you are productive rather than sit and be entertained. Number five, I learned long ago, and it is very important to me to be on time. That means you can order your little universe so that you can get wherever you need to get when you're supposed to be there, clothed and in your right mind. So I got here this morning, and I was wondering if I was going to be clothed in my right mind. (laughs) I thought, oh, I need to be working on this. I always need to be working on being on time. 
Number six, keep your word even in the littlest things. If you say you're going to do it, do it when you said you were going to do it and do it the way you said you'd do it because your word is important. Don't make promises you don't keep. Parents, that's really important. If you tell your kids that they're going to be disciplined and then you don't give them the discipline, you are going against your word and you're not telling the truth. So don't make promises you don't keep. Make commitments and see them through. Number seven, do the hardest task first. Whatever is most important, that's what you want to begin with and save the very easiest thing for last. Most people work on the reverse and when they run out of time, they run out of energy. Number eight, another principle of self-discipline is to finish what you start. Some people's lives are just a long litany of unfinished stuff. If you start it, finish it. Number nine, practice self-denial just for the sake of self-denial. Just say no so you can say to yourself, self, you can say no when you want to. I mean, it might be something you would like to do, might be something that's fine to do. Just say no so you can remind yourself you're still in charge and not completely at the whim of your impulse. Number 10, volunteer for tasks. That means you've got to have your life ordered well enough to say, hey, I'd like to step into that. I want to help over there. And you subject yourself to something that really isn't a part of your own agenda, but it's necessary and it calls for some order in your life. So a very helpful list as you consider being disciplined and ultimately being self-controlled. These things are all very practical and frankly, don't really sound super spiritual, but they are necessary for living for God's kingdom, loving God and serving others. And the sad fact is if we lack self-control, we will struggle to implement even these basic things, these base, this basic list. If we struggle with self-control, we're gonna have a really hard time doing these things consistently and faithfully over a long period of time. If we are not controlled by the power of the Holy Spirit, we will be governed by the sinful impulses of the flesh. It's one or the other. We're either directed by the sinful desires of our flesh and we tend to then be more impulsive, more passionate, or else we are controlled by the Holy Spirit with self-control. <clears throat> so since our chapter was on the topic of lacking self-control, I thought it might be helpful to outline from Scripture a life that almost entirely lacked self-control. There is much we can glean from whose life? Samson's life. Poor guy, really gets a bad rap but we're gonna see why that is the case and to see that Samson was a believer and yet he was still constantly governed by the desires of his sinful flesh over and over and over again. And as we look at this, I want you to think about even your own life and the places in your life where you struggle with self-control. And really, Samson's life is given to us as a warning that we would see where he ends up, the sadness of his life. 
and that we would then choose to be different, that we would have an eternal mindset that would drive us to the Word and humble submission to God by the power of the Holy Spirit so that we would then be self-controlled. So if you guys would turn with me to Judges 1, uh, not 1, 14, 1 through 19. It's pretty much the entire chapter there that we're going to read. And I realize it's a little bit long, but I do want you to see this whole historical narrative. So that's why we're going to go ahead and do the whole thing. <clears throat> and even as we are considering Samson and the places that he lacks self-control. I don't have time to continually refer back to that little list that John MacArthur gave us, but I do want you to think about it. And I do want you to think about the ways that implementing self-control either can take us entirely, if we don't do it, it can entirely take us in a sinful way. But when we do implement it, we can see the benefits of even the things that, that I listed to you in that list. So starting in Judges 14, Verse 1, it says this, Then Samson went down to Timnah and saw a woman in Timnah, one of the daughters of the Philistines. So he came back and told his father and mother, I saw a woman in Timnah, one of the daughters of the Philistines. Now, therefore, get her for me as a wife. Then his father and his mother said to him, Is there no woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all the people that you go take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she looks good to me. However, his father and mother did not know that it was of the Lord, for he was seeking an occasion against the Philistines. God was seeking an occasion against the Philistines, in case you're a little confused on who the he was. Now, at that time, the Philistines were ruling over Israel. Then Samson went down to Timnah with his father and mother and came as far as the vineyards of Timnah. And behold, a young lion came roaring toward him. The spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him so that he tore him as one tears a young goat, though he had nothing in his hand. But he did not tell his father or his mother what he had done. So he went down and talked to the woman and she looked good to Samson. When he returned later to take her, he turned aside to look at the carcass of the lion, and behold, a swarm of bees and honey were in the body of the lion. So he scraped the honey into his hands and went on eating as he went. When he came to his father and mother, he gave some to them, and they ate it. But he did not tell them that he had scraped the honey out of the body of the lion. Then his father went down to the woman, and Samson made a feast there, for the young men customarily did this. When they saw him, they brought 30 companions to be with him. Then Samson said to them, Let me now propound a riddle to you. If you will indeed tell it to me within seven days of the feast and find it out, then I will give you 30 linen wraps and 30 changes of clothes. But if you are unable to tell me, then you shall give me 30 linen wraps and 30 changes of clothes. And they said to him, Propound your riddle that we may hear it. So he said to them, Out of the eater came something to eat, and out of the strong came something sweet. But they could not tell the riddle in three days. Then it came about on the fourth day that they said to Samson's wife, Entice your husband so that he will tell us the riddle, or we will burn you in your father's house with fire. Have you invited us to impoverish us? Is this not so? Samson's wife wept before him and said, You only hate me, and you do not love me. You have propounded a, a riddle to the sons of my people and have not told it to me. And he said to her, Behold, I have not 
told it to my father or my mother, so should I tell you? However, she wept before him seven days while their feast lasted, and on the seventh day he told her because she pressed him so hard. She then told the riddle to the sons of her people. So the men of the city said to him on the seventh day before the sun went down, What is sweeter than honey, and what is stronger than a lion? And he said to them, If you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have found out my riddle. Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon him mightily, and he went down to Ashkelon and killed thirty of them, and took their spoil, and gave the changes of clothes to those who told the riddle. And his anger burned, and he went up to his father's house. <clears throat> so Samson's life stands as perhaps one of the greatest disappointments. A life with immense potential, yet very poorly lived. He was given everything he could possibly need to live for God and become the deliverer of his people. <clears throat> Sorry. Yet, sadly, because he lacked self-control, his life stands instead as an example of what not to do. And it really, as I already said, it stands as a warning to us. <clears throat> so, on your outline, Roman numeral one, we're going to first just look at important facts about Samson's life that are really going to help us understand our passage a little bit more here. So, A on your outline is his conception was miraculously. So if you look back to Judges 13, uh, that really gives the whole uh, account of how his mother became pregnant. She was a barren woman, and the Lord um, allowed her to be pregnant. So Judges 13, 2-5 says this, There was a certain man whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and had borne no children. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold now, you are barren and have borne no children, but you shall conceive and give birth to a son. So this is the first important fact, that God miraculously allowed a barren woman to have a child. And of course, we see many examples of that throughout Scripture. So then B, Samson was called from the womb to be a Nazarite. So looking at verse 4, it says, Now therefore, be careful not to drink wine or strong drink, nor eat anything unclean. So this is, this is actually to Samson's mother. So even she needed to be careful while she was pregnant with Samson. So verse 5, For behold, you shall conceive and give birth to a son, and no razor, razor shall come upon his head. For the boy shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb. And he shall begin to deliver Israel from the hand of the Philistines. So this is from my illustrated dictionary. And it kind of gives a little bit of explanation as to the importance of a Nazarite. So if he's been set aside from the womb, what does that exactly mean? Why is that significant? So they explain it by saying this. There were two different types of Nazarites, the temporary and the perpetual of which the first type was far more common. And if you remember, even the Apostle Paul at one point took the Nazarite vow. So he would have just taken this temporarily. 
But Samson is different. It says, in fact, we know only three of the latter class, the perpetual Nazarite. Samson was one of them, Samuel was one of them, and John the Baptist. So three principles mark, three principal marks that distinguish the Nazarite were, number one, a renunciation of all products of the vine, including grapes. Number two, a prohibition of the use of the razor, so he wasn't supposed to cut his hair. And of course, if we know anything about the story of Samson, that always comes up and is part of it, right? And then number three, avoidance of contact with a dead body. So these are the three components of the Nazarite vow. And really, the whole point was that Samson would be set apart from the womb for service to God so that he would be holy. And even his life practices would demonstrate a separateness from the world unto God. So if we look at numbers, and I realize I kind of have a lot of scripture here today, and it seems like whenever we look at the Old Testament, that's the way it is. But actually, there's a lot of value. So don't grow bored as I'm going through these passages, because this is what helps us to understand the word. This is what gives us a picture. And to be honest, I have just loved the last few times I've taught being able to use these narrative accounts to help us see in reality what does it mean when we look at people who either lack these characteristics that we're looking for or who have them? And so obviously today as we look at self-control, we're looking at the life of somebody who didn't. Because I think sometimes when we just look into the New Testament, we can become maybe a little complacent. And so that's why I've wanted to look at some of these other things so that we're seeing it perhaps in a new light. And that's why we're here today, to see this idea of self-control, maybe in a little different light that we hadn't thought about as much before. So what does this mean, this whole Nazarite thing? Numbers 6, starting in verse 2, says this, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When a man or a woman makes a special vow, the vow of a Nazarite, to dedicate himself to the Lord, he shall abstain from wine and strong drink. He shall have he shall drink no vinegar, whether made from wine or strong drink, nor shall he drink any grape juice, nor eat fresh or dried grapes. All the days of his separation, he shall not eat anything that is produced by the grapevine from the seeds, even to the skin. All the days of his vow of separation, no razor shall pass over his head. He shall be holy unto the days of until the days are fulfilled for which he separated himself to the Lord. He shall let the locks of hair on his head grow long. All the days of his separation to the Lord, he shall not go near a dead person. He shall not make himself unclean for his father or for his mother, for his brother or for his sister when they die, because his separation to God is on his head. All the days of his separation, he is holy to the Lord. So that last verse, all the days of his separation, as he takes this Nazarite vow, he is considered holy as to the Lord. Well, what ultimately does the word holy means? It means to be set apart. So the entire life of Samson was one that was to be set apart, to be holy unto the Lord, which just makes Samson's sinful pursuits even that much more devastating because from the womb God set him aside for a very particular task 
And God still accomplished that task, did he not? But he did it in spite of Samson, rather than Samson cooperating with God as God did his work. So the primary purpose of the Nazarite vow was to be separated unto God. Different people have suggested different associations with the three components of the vow. So I think this is maybe on your outline. <clears throat> I'm sorry, I, I'm getting over a cold, so that's why all this throat clearing. So number one, renunciation of the grapevine signified sobriety and perhaps a renunciation of the world. Number two, not using a razor signified submission or perhaps dedication of strength and vitality to the Lord. And number three, avoiding that which was dead signified separation and sanctification. So I'm going to give you just a little bit of history of the book of Judges very, very, very briefly. But God required for Samson, first of all, this vow to be a lifelong commitment. God chose him and set him apart from the womb to be the deliverer of the Israelites from the hand of the Philistines. He was chosen as the second to last judge in a cycle of judges that lasted approximately 350 years. So do you remember who the last judge was? It was Samuel, right. So Samson came right before Samuel. What we have in the book of Judges, and I actually tried, it didn't print out very clearly, so I don't know how well you can see it, but I tried to give you that cycle from the book of Judges. <clears throat> so we have a pattern of sin and deliverance, and Samson was chosen to be a deliverer for the people. At this point in the history of the Israelites, they were considered a theocracy. That means that God was their king. They didn't actually have a human king. And God ruled the people and guided them and directed them through prophets. So after Joshua died, there was about, like I already said, about 350 years of time before the reign of human kings. So be before Saul became king. So during that time, God raised up judges to free the people from their enemies and to guide them in the truth. The cycle went like this, and this is what's on your little, on your page there. Israel sinned. God would bring enemies to enslave them as punishment. Israel would then cry out to the Lord for deliverance. And then God would raise a judge to deliver them from their enemies. And then they would go into a period of rest. So if you like alliteration and that helps you to remember things, here is that for you. So the first one would be rebellion. That's Israel's sin. The second one is retribution. So God brings enemies intentionally to judge them so that they will turn back to him. So then we have repentance. So then the people repent over their sin. And then they are restored to God as a result, which leads them into the time of rest. So this cycle was completed six times entirely in the book of Judges, according to Phil Johnson. So that's what he said. And then when we get to Samuel, of course, we know that that cycle wasn't completely finished with Samuel because that's when they had a king. So Samson was raised up by God to deliver the Israelites from the Philistines. One thing we need to keep in mind about Samson is that even 
Though he was a man controlled mostly by his passions, by his sinful fleshly pursuits and his impulsive desires, he was still used of God to bring about God's purposes. God's sovereign will is not restrained by our sinfulness. Sometimes we can be really concerned about that. When we have responded sinfully in certain things, as though we, we fret as though we can hinder the ultimate plan of God, nobody can ever hinder the plan of God, even our sinfulness. But what happens in an account like this with Samson? So we see that Samson did not cooperate with the things that God was doing, but the beauty is, is that God still did what he was going to do. And really, when we think about the story of Samson and we tell it to our children, who is always the hero of the story? Samson. Samson's so strong and little boys want to be strong like Samson. Samson's not the hero in the story. God is the hero in this story, and we need to keep that in mind. And I'm not going to continue to repeat that again and again as we go through our lesson today, but I do want you to keep that in mind, that God is the one that is the hero. And whenever we look at these narrative accounts in Scripture, we tend to want to grasp on to those people and be like the people because they're tangible. We can relate to them. And, and sometimes that's not a bad thing to do. The Apostle Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ, right? But who is it ultimately that we should be seeking to glorify and honor and pursue? It's God. That's who we should see as the hero in Whatever account we are reading in Scripture, God is the one that is amazing. So one thing we need to not miss in this historical narrative is God's grace. Though Samson was continually influenced by his sinful desires and failed to obey God's command, God graciously used his life to accomplish his plans. The overarching theme of this account is that God's grace is greater than our sin. That is a beautiful, beautiful truth. God's grace is always greater than our sin. And so instead of us despairing in our sin, what do we do? We repent and we rejoice in thanksgiving at the grace that has been extended to us. When we despair and we go into depression because of our sin, ultimately that's just a proud attitude. It's arrogance because grace, when we understand God's grace, it leads to humility and we see that God is wonderful. Of course we're sinful. Of course we're going to do the sinful things that we do and we shouldn't, but we repent. And then we are in right standing with God again. And the problem with Samson that we see again and again is that Samson was not quick to repent. As a matter of fact, he does not even cry out to God until the very end of his life. He continues to pursue and pursue and pursue his own impulses, his own desires. So see on your outline says, Samson is listed in the hall of faith. So this is important as well. And I mentioned it before, but Samson is actually a believer. 
Otherwise, he wouldn't be listed in the Hall of Faith in Hebrews. So I'm going to read this to you because I want you to hear it from Scripture. So Hebrews 11, 32 through 34 says this. And what more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon and Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. You heard Samson. He's listed there because Samson was a believer in the one true God. We can live much like Samson if we are not careful. And that's what the warning is about. If we were to look at the various heroes of the faith that are listed in Hebrews 11, we would find that they are sinful people, most who have major failures at some point in their lives. The true hero of Hebrews 11 is who? It's God, whose grace supplied the faith for every single one of those people that are listed there. If you have faith this morning, it is because our hero, our Savior, our God has gifted us with that faith so that we might believe. Samson is in the hall of faith because, not because he was great, but rather because he had faith in a great God. So then Roman numeral two. So we've kind of given you a little bit of a background there as now we turn to the actual passage for today. So Samson's failure in self-control. So A on your outline is he was enticed by his sight. So I want you to notice the focus of Samson's desire. What was driving him to marry this Philistine woman? At the very beginning of our chapter, we see that that's what he desires. In verse 1, it says, Then Samson went down to Timnah and saw a woman, one of the daughters of the Philistines. So this is the first thing we see right out the gate in this, the beginning of our chapter here, is that what was it that stirred Samson? His sight. But look, it mentions it a few times, four different verses. Verse 2 says, he came back and told his father and mother, I saw a woman, one of the daughters of the Philistines. Now, therefore, go get her for me as a wife. Verse 3, then Samson says to his father, get her for me, for she looks good to me. Samson did not know this woman. She was a Philistine. She wasn't an Israelite. They were not supposed to have anything to do with the Philistines. Actually, the Philistines were their enemies that had enslaved them. This was the whole reason that Samson had been chosen of God was to deliver them from the Philistines. And yet, what does Samson do? He sees this Philistine woman, the enemy that he should be delivering his people from, and he says, I see her, I want her. Entirely driven by what he sees. Then in verse 7, he says it again. So he went down and talked to the woman, and she looked good to Samson. Four different times, we're told, it was about what he saw. 
So this actually reminded me of the warning in Proverbs to avoid the adulterous woman. If we look at Proverbs 6.25, it says this, Do not desire her beauty in your heart, nor let her capture you with her eyelids. This is for our young men, our old men, whatever they are. Not to be enticed by the beauty of a woman. Be careful. So often, and yet, okay, so we can look at that and go, well, yeah, but that's not for me. I don't, I don't struggle like that. So often, our lack of self-control begins with what our eyes see, and that goes for us as well. How often have you been perfectly content in need of nothing until you see something? Then all of a sudden, you need whatever it is that you saw, and the more you look at it, the more you desire it. Then your desire overrules your self-restraint or your self-control, and you indulge your desire by getting the object of your desire because you continue to crave and covet and desire, and you're not satisfied until you get whatever it was that you saw. That is a complete and total lack of self-control. And, and we'd like to separate ourselves a little bit from Samson. Well. I'm not looking at a woman wanting to get a woman. Of course not. But the principle is the same. And we are driven by what we see as much as any man, just perhaps in a different way. So number one, uh, several little things under here. Samson disobeyed God's command in order to fulfill his desire. So he sees this woman and now he wants this woman. And I just want you to look as we go through all these different things, all the aspects that went into this sin. So when God chose the Israelites to be his chosen people, he chose them to be separate, to be holy. Thus he, com thus he commanded them not to intermarry with the Canaanite nations. So we just have layer upon layer going on here. Because that's exactly what Samson is wanting to do, is he's wanting to intermarry with, this, with the Philistines, this Philistine woman. And again, I'm going to go to Deuteronomy, more, more scripture here, but to give you the history so you understand the importance of this. So Deuteronomy chapter 7, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 6. It says this, When the Lord your God brings you into the land where you are entering to possess it, and clears away many nations before you. Now these, he's specifically talking about the Canaanites. So he says the Hivites and the Girgashites and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, seven nations greater and stronger than you. And when the Lord your God delivers them before you and you defeat them, then you shall utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them to show no favor to them. Furthermore, you shall not intermarry with them. You shall not give your daughters to your sons, nor shall you take your daughters for your sons. Take their daughters for your sons. For they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will quickly destroy you. But thus you shall do to them. You shall tear down their altars and smash their sacred pillars, and hewn down their ashram and burn their graven images with fire. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Samson knew this. And yet, 
what he saw was so, he was so controlled by the power of sight that he was willing to entirely disregard the truth of what he knew and to pursue that anyways. The Philistines, so we might say, well, the Philistines weren't technically Canaanites. So no, so saying that they shouldn't intermarry was not directly prohibited when it came to the actual Philistines. However, the point of not intermarrying was so that the Israelites would not be led astray from God and turn to the idolatry of the other nations. So this was the point. The Philistines were idolatrous people. So even though the Philistines aren't necessarily listed there as absolutely prohibited in marriage together, they still should not have done that because the point is that when you intermarry, you will be tempted to worship their idols. And this is entirely what God forbade. Rather than being concerned about pleasing God through obedience to his word, Samson was compelled by what was visually appealing. Rather than denying himself through the practice of self-control, he sought to indulge his desire by getting what he wanted, which was, in this case, what? A forbidden Philistine idolatrous woman. So we're going to keep moving on here. Number two, Samson dishonored his parents to marry the Philistine woman. So just look at all the different things that he violated in order to pursue what he saw. And the thing is, we need to consider this for ourselves as well. When we see something that we desire because we see it, we need to then do the work and evaluate our own hearts. What is it that is driving me to think I need this thing that I'm seeing right now and work it out? What are those things? What are the underlying sin issues that are driving me to desire this thing? So as I said, uh, Samson dishonored his parents to marry the Philistine woman. So the fact that Samson saw the girl and wanted her was against cultural norms. The parents, particularly the fathers, arranged the marriage to someone who would be suitable. And his father, a God-fearing man, would never have chosen a Philistine woman. So verse 3 says, Then his father and his mother said to him, Is there no woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all our people that you go to take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? They're like, Can you not find, find a nice Israelite girl to marry? But he was not to be thwarted in his desire. But Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she looks good to me. <clears throat> so then number three, Samson, Samson's misuse of his eyes mirrored the underlying attitude of the Israelites. So this is a quote from a commentator, and he says this, the story of Samson serves as the thematic climax to the book of Judges. The refrain of the book is, everyone did as he saw fit, or everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So that is stated in Judges 17.6 and in Judges 21.25. This is ultimately the theme of the book of Judges, that everyone did what was right in their own eyes. 
So he continues on in his quote here. The narrator of Judges uses the same refrain to describe Samson in chapter 14, which is the chapter we are studying today. A literal translation of verse 3 would render his demand as, Get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. So again, uh, Judges comments in verse uh, 7 of chapter 14, She was right in Samson's eyes. And the NIV puts it, he liked her. In this respect, Samson was typical of his period of Israelite history. It was the day for doing one's own thing. That, that was the characteristic that described the nation of Israel at that time. And Samson was one of them. Though he had been chosen from birth to be set apart by God, he was still so influenced by the culture of the time that this was also the theme of his life, whatever was right in his own eyes. We too have to be so guarded that we are not living in a manner that our culture is living, doing things according to what the culture says is right and good. So number four, Samson's attitude parallels the lust of the eyes. So in 1 John, the Apostle John warns against three avenues the world uses to tempt us to sin. So if we look at the book of 1 John, starting in chapter 2, verse 15 and 16, it says this, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, listen to the next one, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. What do we see going on right here with Samson? He is controlled by the lust of the eyes, exactly what the Apostle John warns us not to do. So John MacArthur said this, Sin perverts the use of the eyes and plunges people into dissatisfaction, covetousness, and idolatry. Lot's wife misused her eyes, and God killed her as a result. Achan plundered the forbidden goods he saw, which also led to his death. From his rooftop, David saw Bathsheba bathing, subsequently committed adultery with her, and paid severely for his sin the remainder of his life. Because of such potential consequences, it is imperative for believers to guard their eyes. We are made of the same stuff of Achan and David and Lot's wife and Samson as well. We have got to guard our eyes so that we are not driven by the lusts of our hearts. Our ability to be self-controlled is so easily undone in the face of visual temptation. So practical example here, and I know this because I made dessert a couple days ago. Have you ever had a plate of cookies sitting in the kitchen and you didn't even know that you wanted one until you walked in the kitchen and you saw it there? You're like, I just have to have it. But I didn't walk into the kitchen to get it. I wasn't craving it before I entered the kitchen, but now I've seen it and I must have it. And you know, you've done it before. You walk out because you know, you're going to be self-controlled. So you walk out of the kitchen 
and you try and forget, but you keep remembering that you saw it there. And so you get up and you go back in and you have one. I have literally said multiple times to somebody in my family, I just have to put them, we take them and just stick them in the microwave. I'm like, if, if I can't see it, I won't want it. But if I see it, then I think I need it. Okay, now just take that and apply that to all kinds of things in our lives. What about all the advertisements we see on a daily basis? Business marketer, marketing directors know the power of visual enticement. If they can just get the product in front of you, they can influence you to purchase it. So what about TV shows, YouTube channels, or Pinterest? There are certain things that I do not allow myself to participate in. I do not watch HGTV, and I never have, and I never will. Because I love beautiful things, and I love beautiful homes, and if I watch it, I am going to desire it. And I can be perfectly content in my house and love my home until I see what you can do and what the possibilities are. And it's not that expensive because I could do it myself. And all of a sudden, what happens? Now, I might not, okay, think about this because this is interesting. So I might not actually go out and purchase those things and change my house based on what I saw but I still lack self-control. Do you know why? Because I am discontent now. I have still allowed my heart to covet this thing. Ooh, it's subtle. It's so subtle. Guard your eyes. Don't participate in things that you know you have weaknesses in. Don't look at them. Don't go there. If you struggle with spending money frivolously that you do not need to spend, do not go shopping. Don't go on a shopping date or a shopping holiday. Because what are you going to do? You're going to see something you didn't know you needed and now you think you need it. You don't need it. But the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes convinces you that you need it. In the moment, our impulses override our restraint and we lose our ability to be self-controlled. We must learn, as I already said, to guard our eyes. So number five, unbridled youthful lust can lead to a pattern of lust. And this is just so sad here in Samson's life. Sadly, Samson's indulgence in beautiful women was limited, was was not limited to his marriage to the Philistine girl. It is a pattern that we continue to see later in his life. So in the following, in, uh, the following chapter, I guess a couple chapters later, Judges 16.1, it says, Samson went to Gaza and saw a harlot there and went into her. And then, of course, we know a few verses later that then he had a, 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 a relationship with Delilah as well. So this this um, lust of the eyes did not end with Samson just when he was a young man. It continued to be a pattern. So then B, <clears throat> enticed, he was enticed by his appetite. Later, when Samson went back down to marry the woman, he stopped to see the lion he had killed. You remember that from the passage that I read? 
We aren't given an amount of time, how long that was. We just know that he went and um, went back to check on the carcass of the lion. And what did he find in there? He found honey. So verse 8 says, When he returned later to take her, the woman, he turned aside to look at the carcass of the lion, and behold, a swarm of bees and honey were in the body of the lion. So he scraped the honey into his hands and went on eating as he went. When he came to his father and mother, he gave them some, and they ate it. But he did not tell them that he had scraped the honey out of the body of the lion. So number one, Samson violated his Nazarite vow. So he took the honey out of the carcass of the lion, which was a violation to this vow, because remember, he was supposed to abstain from things that are dead. So we have the woman, which was the lust of the eyes, <clears throat> excuse me, the lust of the eyes. And now we have this uh, taking the honey out of the carcass of the lion, which is lust of the flesh. So the whole purpose was that he was to be set apart to God in holiness. But now he contaminated himself by going to take the honey out of the dead carcass. And he did it rebelliously. He knew what he should do or what he shouldn't do. And yet he did it anyways because of the appetites of his own sinful flesh. So number two, Samson violated the general law. Leviticus 5.2 says, Or if a person touches any unclean thing... So the reason why this is general law is because this was not just for the Nazarites. This was for the people in general. So it says, If a person touches any unclean thing, whether a carcass of an unclean beast or the carcass of unclean cattle or a carcass of unclean swarming things, so they were to have nothing to do with it. And then Leviticus 11.27. So this is interesting as well. It says, also, whatever walks on its paws among, what does a lion walk on? Paws. Among all the creatures that walk on all fours are unclean to you. Whoever touches their carcasses becomes unclean. So, again, we see the various things that Samson was willing to violate in order to please his own desires. So, number three, Samson's attitude parallels the lusts of the flesh that we read about in 1 John. So in the same way that he didn't curb the lust of the eyes and instead indulged himself by getting what pleased his sight, he also didn't curb his appetite or, as we have said, the lust of the flesh. He became a slave to his flesh to please it and provide what he craved. Again, Samson's life provides a practical illustration of what the Apostle John referred to when he warned against the lust of the flesh. The lust of the flesh refers to the debased, ignoble cravings of evil hearts. The base desire of the human heart perverts and distorts all normal desires, sending them into a relentless, slavish pursuit of evil that exceeds proper limits of what is good, reasonable, and righteous, according to John MacArthur. So Matthew Henry says this, and I found this interesting as well. The lust of the flesh is subjectively the humor and appetite of indulging fleshly pleasures. And objectively, all those things that excite and inflame the pleasures of the flesh. This lust is usually called luxury. So, you remember 
what Paul, the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9.27. So the lust of the flesh is to be comfortable, to have what you want, to, um, like he said, luxury. Think about it in those terms. So when you read what the Apostle Paul said, I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. He disciplined his physical body so that he would not be enslaved to the things that his body craved, which means that could be food, it could be comfort, it could be sleep, all kinds of things. He was willing to deny himself so that he would not be enslaved to the lusts of his flesh. Samson had not learned that, and he was enslaved to the lusts of his flesh. Esau provides a sobering example of a man governed by the lusts of his flesh. Because remember, he willingly sold his birthright for a bowl of soup. In the moment, he saw something good, he was hungry, he was famished, he was tired. And in that moment, getting a bowl of soup was more important to him than the birthright, which was very, very important in that culture. How often do we compromise eternal rewards for momentary pleasures? Our greed, gluttony, laziness, selfishness keep us enslaved to our impulses and instant gratification, sabotaging our ability to be self-controlled. This is, this is the whole thing. Constantly be considering the self-control These things, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the boastful pride of life, those things hinder us from being self-controlled. So number four, Samson had a disregard for God's commands in youth that led to a disregard later in life. So F.B. Meyer says this, The rending of the lion was accomplished by divine power, but the contact with the carcass rendered Samson unclean, when later he returned to fetch his wife and found the carcass full of honey. He would not tell his parents the origin of the honey, lest they might have scrupled to partake of it. In these little acts of laxity, he was already laying the foundation of his fall. The borer worm prepares the oak for its fall long before it snaps before the northeast blast. We have to guard our hearts because later when we see from Samson in Judges 15, 15, he found a fresh jawbone of a donkey. So he reached out and took it and killed a thousand men with it. He should never have touched that jawbone. It was unclean to him. And yet he did it anyways. Years later, he had not learned self-control. So see, He was enticed by his pride. At the end of this chapter, we see a third way Samson reveals his slavery to his impulses. When the men nag his wife because they want to know the answer to the riddle so they don't have to pay out on all those clothes. Um, Samson, when, when they discover what the answer to the riddle is, remember Samson gets very angry and then he goes and kills people. So... 18, that seems to be a pattern with Samson. So verse 18, so the men of the city said to him on the seventh day before the sun went down, what is sweeter than honey and what is stronger than a lion? 
And he said to them, If you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have found out my riddle. Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon him mightily, and he went down to Ashkelon and killed thirty of them, and took their spoil, and gave the changes of clothes to those who told the riddle. And his anger burned, and he went up to his father's house. So another commentator said this, The only positive thing to be said for Samson in this entire episode is that he paid his wager. So he kept up his end of the bargain with the riddle. Although in a brutal and violent way, traveling 20 miles southwest to the coastal Philistine town of Ashkelon, he acquired the means of paying his, his bet by viciously taking the lives and clothes of 30 uninvolved Philistines. What is unexpected is that the power to carry this act out is attributed to the Holy Spirit, who came upon him in power. Whatever we make of the morality of Samson's actions, God is at work in all these things to bring about the deliverance of his people. The Lord did not direct Samson into disobedience or immoral actions. We cannot escape responsibility or accountability for our sins, but in the providential purpose of God, it is his intentions that triumph. God is at work through Samson accomplishing his plans through this very unworthy instrument. God was at work, but Samson was sinful in the middle of all of that. But God still accomplished his plan. So number one, and this is the last point on our outline, Samson's attitude parallels the boastful pride of life. So Matthew Henry says this, The boastful pride of life is the ambition and thirst after honor and applause. This is in part the disease of the ear. It must be flattered with admiration and praise. So this is precisely what we see in Samson's attitude in this, in this account here. And it explains why he became so angry when he didn't win the contest with the riddle. Because he wanted to win. He wanted to be the one that was in control. So there is a lesson for us here as well. The desire to be accepted by others, to be recognized, to be applauded or praised, praised leads to a lack of self-control in numerous ways. Like talking too much, describing our own successes, putting others down, or even spending unnecessary money to gain approval through our appearance or possessions. Again, we must guard our hearts from the boastful pride of life so that we will not be swept away from living a spirit-controlled life. And I appreciated that Jerry Bridges in the book used this verse, Proverbs 25, 28. Like a city that is broken into and without walls is a man who has no control over his spirit. And I know I kind of rushed there on the, that last point, but we need to keep in mind that we need to guard our hearts from the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, and evaluate those things so that we can be self-controlled. We live in a culture where enslaving habitual self-indulgence is not only normal, but it is accepted, promoted, and even exploited. We are called as believers to be holy, to be separated from the world unto God for his glory and his purpose. Thus, we must not allow ourselves to be enslaved to our impulses in the same way that Samson was. 
We must learn to repent of our sin and strive to please God through the power of the Holy Spirit in self-control.